Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now chief executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights, and together we promise to provide you some inspiring and thought-provoking dialogue. Today on International Women's Day, I'm delighted to welcome and celebrate one of the industry's most accomplished leaders, Dr. Annalisa Jenkins. Annalisa's inspirational career spans over 25 years, would you believe, in the global biopharma industry. Her career started closer to home at St. Bart's here in London, where she trained as a cardiologist before joining the Royal Navy as a medical officer during the Gulf conflict, achieving the rank of Surgeon Lieutenant Commander during her time there. Back on terra firma, Annalisa spent almost two decades producing a pipeline of innovation at Bristol-Myers Squibb and Merck Serono. She has built and led scientific, regulatory and medical affairs teams to advance programmes from scientific research through clinical development, regulatory approval and into healthcare systems globally. More recently, Annalisa has focused her experience on building and financing biotech companies, pursuing cures for the most challenging rare diseases and working to address important medical issues globally. She served as president and CEO of Dimension Therapeutics, a leading gene therapy company that she took public on NASDAQ and subsequently sold to Ultragenics in 2017. She also sits on the board of many growing companies, one of which is OnCommune, where I have the great honour of tapping into her experience and benefiting from her mentorship. She is a fierce champion for diversity and inclusion, particularly for women in science, and so I'm delighted to welcome her to Extra Time today. Annalisa, thank you very much for joining me. Well, thanks, Adam, and uh, thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to having a good chat with you. Me too, me too. So you've been an incredible force in pharma and biotech for the past two decades or more. And as I, I mentioned just now, um, you, you made a very successful leap out of big pharma into smaller biotech and high innovation companies about five, six, six years ago. What, what inspired you to make that leap and, and what have you enjoyed most about that transition? Yes, well, you know, I'd been in the uh, pharmaceutical industry for many, many years and uh, I had really had was such a privilege. It was a remarkable journey. I think by the time I'd gotten to, um, you know, 2013, I was really becoming more and more intrigued uh, by life in, in biotech. And the reason was really because over the prior 10 years, I'd been on the other side, um, navigating deals and transactions with biotechs from the chair of a, of a large pharma company. Mm-hmm. And what I was mm-hmm. observing was the really the amazing entrepreneurial spirit, the speed, the pace, and also the, the scientific innovation that was emerging. And I felt uh, was becoming more and more important uh, in the overall sector. So I, I just thought it would be, again, um, a place to go and learn new things, meet new people, mm-hmm. and perhaps to um, 
participate in what I saw as the next real wave of innovation in our sector and to be a sort of part of the leading edge of some of these new technologies. And that was really why I thought, well, I'll, I'll try, my, I'll, I'll, I'll try my, my, my next phase of my professional career in a, in a different part of our sector. I was just really curious and excited about that. I mean, it's rare, isn't it, to, to go from sort of biotech into big pharma, maybe a little more common to have gone from big pharma into biotech. What do you think the reason for that is? And, and what do you think, um, what are the skills that maybe... Mm. You, you were able to bring out a big farmer into smaller companies that, that stood you in good stead to do such a good job with Dimension Therapeutics and others. Well, you know, you've seen actually in the last um, well number of years, as you correctly say, uh, the uh, increasing moves from pharma into the biotech space. I think the one thing to point out, of course, is that these are fundamentally different business models. Mm, yeah. And of course, we say it's all part of the life science sector, but large pharma is fundamentally a different environment, different business model, um, and it has all sorts of attractions to it, of course. Uh, large pharma, of course, has the scale. It, it truly is end-to-end, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. In, it epitomizes really the bench-to-bedside. So, you know, I think that being able to uh, bring that global perspective um, the years of uh, seeing uh, science and innovation emerge from the labs, but to get it all the way out into um, healthcare systems globally, I think that that's really important because you have a true end-to-end perspective. And, and in some ways, if you can start with the end in mind in biotech, I think it helps a lot in the early phases of thinking through your development strategy and how you build a company. So I think that was important. I think the other um, the other point is that you do understand what makes big pharma tick. I mean, I, I think I I still have a pretty good sense of you know how the business operates, what the needs are, how how they value technology, and how they think about drug development, market access, you know, uh, global deployment uh, and supply chains. And I think that's all useful insights to bring into the biotech world that. You know, to a certain extent, you know, um, the challenge in biotech, I guess, is that, that, that people often don't really have that experience and, and are often mm. doing things for the first time. Um, and I think so. Hopefully I was able to bring that knowledge. And also the other point I want to make is that it, it, I, I actually sort of have a pretty good sense of how successful collaborations between small companies and large companies can work seen it work really really well over the years mm-hmm. and so it's always good to have a sense from both sides of that equation uh, what the wins are and what the needs are because I think that those successful collaborations are the engine I think of our industry and sort of having a sense of both the biotech perspective and the large pharma perspective I think is quite important for those sorts of collaborations. Mm. I think you're right the life science industry is is really a spectrum isn't it at both ends of the yeah. at either bookend you you have quite different business models and quite different beasts and um, it's, it's, it's rare Annalisa to find someone that's been so successful um, at, uh, at both ends of that, that spectrum. But in, in the last 20 years or so what, what have been the big changes that you've observed in the industry and, and what, what are you most excited about moving forward? Well of course um, I was going to say just as a segue from that previous discussion I remember uh, vividly um, sitting with a couple of the senior leaders in R&D actually I think we were in a bar in Shanghai actually on a trip to China 
And uh, <laughs> we were sitting around the table reflecting, this was in about 2004, 2005, um, what we thought would be the next phase of our industry and what was exciting. And, and they, we were saying that, you know, we had an observation that on the one hand, we had very large pharma, lots and lots of benefits, but the challenge, of course, was to go quick and to be entrepreneurial. And on mm. the other hand, you had biotech, which often suffered from a lack of scale um, and global um, deployment. And so we coined this phrase biopharma. And that was right, really <laughs> about taking the best of biotech and the best of pharma and saying, if you could put the two together, surely there's another way, and it's called biopharma. And that actually, you know, became, uh, you know, that, that actually became really the next wave of, of our industry. And I would say that uh, really what I'm excited about now, because that actually spurned really the next generation of really innovative uh, thinking about, um, I'm going to come on to talk about it, I'm sure, you know, the, the, the role of the immune system in disease and mm, uh, yeah. the way we think about tackling disease. But also, of course, we were all thinking about how could we really move towards putting the patient at the centre. That was another uh, vision that we had around 2006. I actually led a project for Bristol Myers Squibb in about 2007-8, which was called um, Putting the Patient at Centre, Patient Centricity. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, in those days we had this vision that really we should be able to move towards more stratified medicine and precision medicine, matching, of course, the best therapeutic to mm-hmm. the right patient, mm-hmm. right, right patient, right time, right dose. And, and, and that was really the vision. I think that it's fair to say that we were a bit ahead of the curve and it's taken quite a bit of time. Um, But now, of course, we're in this hugely accelerating phase of the notion of precision medicine and precision diagnostics and stratified medicine. I think the other area, and I've just mentioned it, was that in those days we were also at the leading edge of the field of immuno-oncology. And there's no doubt that this has really transformed um, the way we think about the diagnosis and care of patients um, living with cancer and also at risk of cancer and therapy that really is cancer agnostic in some ways. I think we're, we're accelerating in that phase, really redefining how our modern day therapeutics can be matched to um, a different way of thinking about cancer um, and particularly the intersection of you know, the immune system and cancer. I think that's just really been a remarkable progress in there. And of course, linked to that is biomarker development. Mm. Again, you know, it wasn't wasn't that long ago, actually, that the um, FDA issued a very interesting report. I think, you know, I sit on the policy board of the FDA and we issued a report about five years ago called Science Travelling at the Speed of Sound, five priorities to really focus on at the FDA, uh, one of which was biomarker development. Biomarker validation and development. So that's been, you know, uh, again, at the forefront, I think, of, of development in the last few years. And this whole notion that predictive biomarkers can play a key role in immunotherapies by really redefining um, patients in a fundamentally different way uh, that go way beyond these blunt tools that we use, you know, lung cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, you know, in the future, we're clearly not going to define cancer in that way. So just really an exciting time uh, in our industry today. But it's taken time to get there. And as I say, you know, we've been at this for about 15, 20 years now, but I do feel it's all coming to, to fruition. 
I want to pick up on some of those points and take a deeper dive in a moment, particularly sort of immunotherapy and, and biomarker development, where we have a joint interest and we work very closely together Indeed. at, at OnCommune. But before I do, it, you know, it would be remiss of me, particularly on International Women's Day, if I, if I didn't touch upon the very significant work that you do in, in inclusion and diversity. Yep. The industry has changed, hasn't it, in its, its treatment of um, and support for uh, women um, in the last 20 years. I suspect quite quite substantially mm. um, it'd be interesting to learn a little bit about some of those some of those changes how you think things have evolved where you think it might need to go and and maybe also you know get a sense of of what sort of advice you might have provided to your younger self um, starting <laughs> out in a career in in the pharma and biotech industry yes well it's been quite a journey I have to say over the last 25 30 years <laughs> in the industry um, what I would say is that uh, today um, I find that less and less I have to sit in a room and try and help uh, the audience understand the value of diverse teams and, uh, you know, the, the, the business benefit of having diverse perspectives around the table and the business benefit and, uh, and the talent management opportunities of including uh, women uh, in in the uh, in the dialogue and obviously um, and viewing them as a key pipeline of talent uh, for any mm. any business. I think that most people now, of course, understand that, and uh, of course, the data is overwhelmingly uh, supportive of the value, the business uh, case, and of course. We shouldn't really have to argue just solely on a business case. It's it's actually the right thing to do um, to, as a of society course. to um, provide equality of opportunity uh, to men and women um, at any point in time. So I think we've made a lot of progress in that. Now, of course, it's all very well to say that. I, I do think that over the years that I've spent a lot of time trying to work through um, how processes and systems within organisations and culture um, can enable and accelerate um, the uh, diversity at the table at all levels in an organisation um, and how to ensure that uh, all parts of the organisation are enabling equality of access to opportunity, not just talking about it, but actually uh, but doing it. And so I think that continues to be a bit of a journey. I do think also that I um, spent a lot of time, frankly, um, working with men um, who yeah. are progressive, yeah. um, visionary men. And, and I have to tell you, over the years, certainly in my case, uh, my career and professional growth and all the opportunities I had were inevitably um, enabled by men, men that uh, generously mentored me. Uh, in many cases sponsored me, sponsorship being an enormously important uh, part of the uh, progress that women have made over the years. Uh, and the men, I, I often talk about men that have made a difference for women. Um, and I, you know, I always say to the men that really, today, even today, this is in your hands. And men continue mm. to occupy many of the positions of power and decision making and leadership. And so it's really down to the men um, to unlock these opportunities. So, you know, I, I, I am completely hopeful that whilst it wasn't always easy along the way, um, <laughs> that I think that I certainly was privileged to work uh, across my career and along my career. 
um, with very inspiring leaders who really um, led the way in many cases in this space. Uh, right from the day, actually, at, at Bristol Myers Squibb, where I said that I wanted to start a women in science uh, movement at the organisation, and um, we set up the first women in science uh, chapter in the US and soon had many, many chapters across the globe um, enjoying that programme, networking, supporting each other um, with the full support and advocacy of the leaders of the organisation, the guys at the organisation that supported that. And I think that continues to this day at Bristol Myers Squibb. You know, and in terms of giving, uh, giving myself some advice, you know, uh, I would say that um, a couple of things. I've learned along the way just to calm down a little bit, to uh, take a breath, um, not to run at 3,000 miles an hour every day. Um, life is a marathon, not a 100-metre dash. But I think the biggest, the biggest piece of advice I can give to younger women, I do actually give to the younger women now, the next generation, who are so inspiring, is don't plan and don't overthink it. Mm. Life is really not linear. It's not predictable. It's not linear. And I think really fundamentally to start off with truly reflecting um, and asking oneself, you know, what are your values? What make, what drives you? What, what energise you? Particularly these days, what makes you happy? And what are you good at? And, in, and really importantly, what are you not good at? I think over the years, I've become very clear about what energises me to get out of bed every day and what I think I'm pretty good at. But clearly what I'm not particularly good at. And I think it's really important pretty early on in your career to understand that and to be honest about yourself. And then once you have that sense, ultimately in your professional life, it is a journey and follow your instincts. Grab opportunities, be curious and just look at your professional life as an opportunity to grow, to flourish, to learn professional, new, new professional um, sort of talents, as it were, along the way. So I think overall, I would give myself advice to be not quite so intense, not quite so planful, <laughs> not quite so sort of, you know, slightly manic in my early days, and just to relax and, and really, ultimately, um, I think, to um, follow your heart. I think we could all do with heeding a little bit of that advice and, um, and certainly <laughs> advice that I'll be sharing with the, uh, the young ladies in my life. I, 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 I spoke to them this morning <laughs> over the breakfast table um, and they were delighted to hear that I, I was speaking to you on the podcast. And I'm sure we'll be, be nagging me later to listen to, to what you, you said, but I'll be sharing that advice. They want to be scientists, chief executives, clinicians and and occasionally mummies um, uh, but uh, but oh, well <laughs> it's great not? to have, have ambition it ah, have it all absolutely no they sh <laughs> they should they, it's great to have ambition and I have to tell you that uh, the delight of my life is I do get to interact now with the, the next generation and I that really inspires me to get out of bed every day and I will also say that I was privileged and lucky enough along the way to have two amazing kids who are now in their late 20s One's pursuing a, a legal profession, and the other one's pursuing public health and medicine. I couldn't oh, be more gosh, proud of them. And, yeah. you know, I, um, I hopefully I've been able to give them a little bit of sage advice along the I'm way. I'm sure, I'm <laughs> sure. So let's now do that deep dive, shall we, into biomarkers and, um, and, the, uh, and immunotherapies. I mean, the, 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 role of, 
the role of diagnostics and tools has really come to the fore, hasn't it? Um, primarily, I guess, yeah, as a result yeah. of the, the pandemic response. Everyone now has become an expert, not not just a, a, an armchair epidemiologist, but also an expert in specificity and sensitivity of diagnostic tests and, and where biomarkers come from and what they might be used for. But, but of course, your career has taken a path that saw you at the very early stages of the use of and the understanding of immune, mm. immune um, biomarkers. Their role, of course, um, able to help profile the complex um, effects of immune modulating um, therapies, such as Yervoy and, um, and, and others um, mm. that, that you and your team at, at BMS were involved in, one of the early observers of um, the, the immune-related adverse events that, that we've, um, we've, we've spoken about before. Yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about that early experience um, in this field? And also what, what you feel or where you feel this, this field is, is heading towards in the yeah, future? Yeah, I, I remember it vividly to this day. I remember I'd been actually abroad um, in Paris, actually. I was running the um, R&D largely development regulatory actually for Bristol Myers Squibb across Europe, Middle East and Africa, which is a broad leadership role. And I was asked by the then head of R&D, Elliot Siegel, remarkable, remarkable leader, um, to come back in the beginning of 2006 um, to um, take on a much more sort of mid to late stage development role overseeing the development teams at Bristol Myers Squibb, one of which was um, Yervoy. And the, uh, at the time, uh, the programme was in phase two and we had a partnership with Medirex. And I remember sitting around a table as the phase two data was gradually being unblinded and we were starting to um, understand uh, the potential of this therapy. But what we were also noticing and the team were bringing to us were these early cases of um, uh, severe hepatitis, uh, colitis, mm hypophysitis, these, you know, events that really uh, we were still trying to understand. And th- these, were, these were serious. And in fact, in the early days, unfortunately, um, led to the death of certain patients mm. in the early phase of that programme. And uh, whilst we were trying to put in protocols to predict and manage those events, um, we were also trying to work through what this really meant. And we coined this phrase, um, and in fact, it was coined by a- another remarkable individual who was the development lead for Yervoy at the time, um, a woman, Rachel Humphrey. Oh, yes, she said, well, these look like immune-related adverse events, and that's how uh, they came up with this term. It was the first use of the term, immune-related adverse events. And that was really important because, of course, we were having ongoing discussions with the regulatory agencies trying to work through whether this was truly on target, off target, you know, what what it meant, because they were profound. But of course, at the same time, and this is what it was so important, we were seeing stage four really advanced treatment-resistant patients Mm. with profound responses. I mean, really, the tumours were melting away. And in those early days, we we suddenly realised over a period of time how profound these responses were. But we also realised that we were really only seeing them in about a third, I think it was, of patients. So it was, a, it was a, again, what a moment in time, uh, leading, you know, it's always difficult to be the first <laughs> at times. You know, it was new, it was exciting, but of course the science was really rapidly emerging and mm. evolving. And, um, you know, at the time actually, the programme went forward and went up to the agency. Obviously we completed the initial work in the melanoma programme and the agency, of course, the agencies are really interested in 
could we predict at the outset the patients that were going to uh, develop these immune-related adverse events? That was number one. Were the immune-related adverse events in some ways predictive of response? And therefore, could we also predict the patients, the third or so of patients, that would, would benefit um, in those days? And the answer at that time was no, actually. There was an enormous amount of work that was done to try and bring forward prognostic and predictive biomarkers. And as you know, the initial label didn't include that with Yervoy. And that's really been almost the holy grail of this space ever since, you know, how do we how do we do that? And of course, as you know, we're now making a lot of progress in truly understanding the facts that actually at baseline, the patient's immune system and its relationship with the patient's tumour uh, probably it does matter. It mm-hmm. really does matter. And we probably shouldn't be surprised by that. And so, you know, understanding that and being able to unpack that in a far more precise way um, with the use of uh, precision um, biomarkers clearly is a path forward that all of the sponsors and innovators in the space um, desire. The ability to rule out patients where you know, there will be um, adverse events and rule in patients who are particularly suited and likely to get a profound effect and uh, benefit from our therapies. Mm. Mm. And, and so does the future um, of immunotherapy rely upon sort of complementary or companion diagnostics and tools um, to better select patients and then support um, those patients through the various different phases and stages of therapy. Oh, absolutely. And of course, you know, in cancer, but as you know, also, I think in autoimmune diseases, in infectious diseases, these are all areas where the immune system, uh, the interaction of the immune system with pathology, I guess, with disease is critical. And the ability to understand that, uh, I think it's just going to be, I suspect it's going to be um, the, the, the path forward and, and into the future and become a standard in the clinical management and clinical care pathways. You know, it's, it's absolutely clear that the future also is in combination therapy. Um, we've seen that particularly with the PD-1, PDL ones yes, yep. um, We've seen the enormous expansion of programs uh, being uh, executed at the moment, hundreds of them, frankly, um, clinical trials, uh, combinations of therapies. So I think that, you know, integrating diagnostics um, to better understand how to match these therapies with the with the right patients uh, at a really individual basis i think is absolutely going to be the way that this whole space moves forward i think understanding the combinations and better matching different combinations with patients i mean we truly are entering the world in the future of individual patients you know the best drug for the best patient at the best time in the right dose and inevitably all of that will come to fruition as we truly understand you know at baseline genomics proteomics metabonomics and importantly the immune uh, system and um, you know the prediction that the immune the baseline immune system you know we often call that immune fingerprinting Mm -hmm. you know an understanding of how you can fingerprint and, and and understand the individual's immune system at baseline that is the pathway and that's really I think the pathway that we're going to see 
um, in all aspects of uh, our industry as we think about modern day therapeutics and care pathways for patients, truly understanding individuals in a fundamentally different way with all the tools now that we are having at our disposal, integrating them and then using that insight and information to not only develop, di uh, discover and develop new medicines, but also obviously to apply those in the best way for optimal mm. outcomes. Mm. I think you're right. I think, you know, the, the, the personalised or stratification approach to uh, delivering the optimal therapy for, um, for individual patients, uh, long heralded and discussed, debated, um, but I think we are starting to see it, aren't we, in practice now? And certainly the development pipeline looks as though um, it's, going to, it's going to further um, develop that area of medicine um, over, the, over the coming years. Yeah, that's right. And the industry has fundamentally changed over time. Again, I remember, you know, 10, 15 years ago, perhaps a bit longer, where we'd sit in a room looking at development strategies and plans for assets. And of course, our commercial folk would be saying to us, right, well, we need to find a disease that's got you know thousands of patients what's the market <laughs> opportunity and it was viewed in volume it was all about volume well of course those same smart commercial uh, leaders are now um, sitting there really talking to, about um, differentiated medical benefit and medical value how can we enrich our populations to ensure that the magnitude of the benefit is optimised. And that's a fundamentally different way of thinking about our business and opens up all of these opportunities. I, I think many of us are saying that, you know, what one day I think all diseases by definition will have the look and feel of a rare disease because we'll be looking to segment patients in such a way, both in our clinical trials and then obviously the way that we go out to healthcare systems globally, uh, with so much more precision that the design of our trials, execution of our trials and the implementation of, in our healthcare systems is really going to be fundamentally mm -hmm. changed. And what that is all about is saying, as we get better and better and better insights on biology, and better insights at an individual level at patients, we're just going to get a lot better, hopefully, at giving them, giving them the best opportunities when it comes to their care pathways and therapeutics. I'm very excited. I just think this is the way the, uh, the world is moving. The only question is how fast. And I think the pandemic, in some ways, is, has sort of enabled and accelerated thinking um, in this way. And I think that the money now that's flooding into our industry rightly so, because everyone's understanding the importance of this, I think will enable and accelerate. And I think the regulatory systems are also running hard to mm. keep up with this, but I think they really are committed. I know the leaders of regulatory science on a global basis are also committed um, to really helping us think mm. through this, through the validation of novel biomarkers and diagnostics. And, and I think that's really important because none of this really can be realised unless everything keeps going at the same pace in parallel. We have to have regulatory systems that can navigate this um, and expertise there, along with um, the pace of change in our development uh, systems and, and also the healthcare systems would also have to adapt. So lots and lots of opportunity um, and just a really exciting time to be in this industry. Yeah, the, the, the pandemic certainly has had an impact, hasn't it, on, yeah. on the life science industry and healthcare delivery as a, 
as a whole, tremendous, tremendous positive strides forward that have come out, not just of regulatory science, but the speed of development yes. has been absolutely unbelievable, both both on the diagnostic side, but also in, in vaccines and, uh, and and targeted biologics, as, um, as, as I'm sure we're going to start seeing for the more severe cases um, of, of, of COVID um, yeah. moving forward. Amazing, amazing, really. Um, I have the privilege, I guess, of of, of, of hosting this um, this podcast um, and and asking all of our guests um, that if they could pick three people um, to sit in your seat and maybe be subjected to the same sorts of questions, um, who, who might they be, and, and and what questions might you ask them? Hmm. Well, um, of course, that's a that's a big question, and uh, there's a lot of candidates for that. <laughs> I mean, so I, I've, I've written down three because I, I knew that you were going to ask me that. <laughs> you ask everyone that. Good, um, good. And it's International Women's Day. So three women, of course. Um, and of course, um, right. so I think that the first person I would choose, and I think it's pretty relevant, and uh, apologies to our international um, audience, but um, some of you will know her, is uh, Kate Bingham. Kate Bingham, um, who is the senior partner and leader at SV Life Sciences, one of the most successful um, venture capitalist firms, healthcare, um, certainly here in the UK and and, and globally. And Kate, last year, took on an opportunity to uh, lead the vaccines task force for the UK government. And she went from her role in the private sector, venture capital, and she wandered into the public sector um, and into the senior halls of uh, government, hallways of government. And uh, Kate did a truly remarkable job. She, um, she really applied her learnings over many years in the health and life science sector um, to the task at hand, which, as we know, was a, a, a huge challenge and, and, and essentially mapped the pathway for the procurement and early deployment of uh, vaccines uh, for the UK population and today we see the uh, the output and the benefit of that and the reason I, I pick her uh, is because she showed courage, she showed resilience, um, she uh, demonstrated all of the uh, attributes that one would want to see from a leader I think uh, faced with a crisis and a huge challenge and this sort of steely sense of determination just to get stuff done. And the question I'd like to ask, of course, that she probably would never answer is, you know, <laughs> how did it feel going from, <laughs> from the corporate, corporate world into government and overnight having to actually deliver? I mean, she didn't have two years to learn how to, to, to get up to speed. So I think that she's, she's just done a remarkable job and I have such tremendous admiration for her. I think the second person I would choose um, would be Angela Merkel. <laughs> I've followed Angela over many, many, many years as we all have. I mean, I was a Thatcher, but I always say to people, actually, I got my first inspiration from two remarkable women. I was a teenager during the years of Margaret Thatcher and when Queen Elizabeth, of course, was was the Queen. So the two most senior leadership positions as I was growing up were occupied by women in the United Kingdom. And, you know, Germany's had Angela at the helm um, for many, many years and she's now stepping down. I think what I really admire about her mm-hmm. above mm-hmm. all is again the um the sustainability and, and durability um of her leadership yes. it is very very difficult to be in a role particularly a political role 
for 15, 15 to 20 years. And it's remarkable. And I'd like to ask her, actually, about how she did get out of bed every day, have the energy and the passion through all the ups and downs over the years um, and the, the hunger and the energy um, just to do, uh, to do her job every day. Because I think that, as I said earlier, life is a marathon, not a 100-metre dash. And having that resilience over the years <laughs> and the ability to sustain one's energy and passion over the years, I think is just is a remarkable attribute. And I think, lastly, and, you know, it is, as I say, Women's Day, but also I think this is relevant to other discussions going on across many societies. My other... Uh, woman that I would pick is Frida Lewis Hall. Frida Lewis Hall recently mm, mm. retired um, from a remarkable career in the global biopharma sector. She was most recently chief medical officer at Pfizer. Um, Frida and I grew up together in the industry. Um, we were colleagues in the, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago at Bristol Myers Squibb when I led international medical and Frida led the US division. And we grew up through Bristol Myers Squibb. We remained colleagues and friends over the years. And Frida has been remarkable because as an African-American woman of her generation, she has achieved so mm -hmm. much um, when life wasn't always easy. I would say to you, I, I had the easy run compared to Frida. And yet Frida um, always... Um, was very courageous um, and moved forward really to this um, the senior most senior leadership role in in, in our industry at Pfizer and mm -hmm. all the way was gracious was um, giving to all those around us she mentored so many people over the years and continues to do so and was a huge voice and advocate for not only women for but for black women and again, has continued to, to be a voice on the Hill, across our industry and beyond. And so I think that it's fitting for me to, uh, to recognise Frida. And I think if I was, again, if she was sitting in this seat, you know, along the way, what she learned actually in terms of her professional career and how she had to adapt and evolve over the years to sequentially move into the roles that she was in, and then how she was able to balance her life between her day job at Pfizer, which is an enormous role, but, but her ability to give back in so many ways um, to other women, to different sectors, the work she was doing on the Hill in policy. It was, it, she, her life has just been uh, across the board, a life of giving. And uh, she's inspired me every day and she continues to inspire me. Three incredible and very inspiring women, very topical as well. And and like like you, I've um I've I've been amazed by by their their achievements throughout their career, but but more importantly, their achievements over the last last year or mm. year or two have been just 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 incredible. Mm. Dr. Annalisa Jenkins, it's been an absolute privilege. Um, it's been an education. <laughs> Many thanks for your time, and I look forward to sailing close to your ship as we progress through this industry together. Oh, thank you very much, Adam.